If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. You also have a handout, a really big handout with the scripture on it this morning. Uh, I will not be reading all of that. Uh, I will read certain sections of that. Hopefully I will make that clear to you as I read uh, this morning. And what I don't read, I will fill in the gaps and draw your attention uh, to the passage. And so keep that sheet out in front of you and that might be helpful as we go uh, through the message and through the passage this morning. But as we read, this is an amazing story. Uh, it was amazing as I kind of jumped back into it uh, this week. As we go through, listen to the detail. Uh, it's really, really incredible. Uh, children, uh, youth, kids, uh, this is a story maybe you're familiar with. If not, you should listen up because this is a really, really good story. It's an amazing uh, story. And so, I hope you'll listen in as well uh, this morning. This is God's Word. I'll start in verse 3, 1 Samuel 17, verse 3. I'll look at 3 through 11, and then we'll skip down to verse 40. This is God's Word. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. He's able to fight with me and kill me. Then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. They were greatly afraid. So skip down now to verse 40. Uh, Basically, David arrives to the scene. They're all trying to figure out who's going to fight this guy. And David says, I'll do it. Pick up verse 40. There's a lot more that happened than that, but I'm summarizing. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistines moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. 
and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What a speech, huh? <laughs> and, and that in all the assembly they may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Verse 48, when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning with this amazing passage. Let's pray together. Father, come to us this morning through your spirit. This is a familiar passage, and some of us, it's tempting that we know this, we've got this, and it just simply goes in one ear and out the other because we have read it, and heard about it so many times through the course of our life. I pray that you would take this familiar passage and make it like we are reading and learning about it for the very first time. More importantly, we ask that you would make Jesus uh, come alive to us in a new and a fresh way this morning. We need you and ask you to come through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This fall, we have been studying the books of First and Second Samuel, And specifically, we've been looking at the life of David. And the question that we've asked, and we're going to ask probably for the first couple of weeks, is why in the world would we look at the life of a man who lived thousands of years ago and spend any time at all, much less two or three months, looking at his life? Well, there's probably lots of things that we could say this morning about that, but Uh, Perhaps most importantly is this, when you get to the New Testament, the very first verse in the New Testament, it says, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. All throughout the New Testament, we see people saying, Jesus, Son of David, and so other people are calling him that. And so if we're going to understand Christianity, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and trying to figure out Christianity, you've got to deal with this statement, Jesus Christ, the the son of David, to understand really Christianity. If you've been a Christian your whole life and you just want to understand the Bible better, you've got to deal and understand where David fits into the story of the Bible. And so to do that, we've got to look at the Old Testament and look at his life. And so that's what we're doing uh, for the next couple of months. And this morning we come to this famous passage, David and Goliath. It's probably, arguably, the most famous passage in the entire Bible. And the reason why I say that is because people outside the religious community know this passage. People that have nothing to do with Christianity, that have never read the Bible, one story, one page in the Bible, know the story of David and Goliath. You hear it every spring. I'm a basketball guy. Every spring in March Madness, don't you? The beginning, those opening rounds, the NCAA Blue Bloods, the Goliaths taking on those small mid-majors, and the announcers will make reference. This is a classic David and Goliath story where this small school is trying to do the impossible. 
And so we hear it everywhere, and we love the story. People love the story. And I think the reason why we love the story is because it resonates with us so deeply. It taps into our humanity, doesn't it? Because think about it. How often do you move out into the world and feel outmatched, overwhelmed, feel like the underdog as you look and as the world presses in on you? As we come face to face with our own sin that presses on us from the inside and as sin presses and the brokenness presses in on the outside as we struggle in relationships and our health struggles and our financial struggles and spiritual struggles, all those things hit us and they leave us feeling overwhelmed and outmatched and feeling like we have an insurmountable enemy. And what that does in us is produce fear and it produces anxiousness within our own hearts. And so there is not a person in this room this morning that does not need courage, am I right? All of us, in some way, shape, or form, need courage to face something that we are going through this morning. And so here's the question. The question this morning is this. How do you go from fear and anxiousness to courage when the obstacles in life seem insurmountable? How do you go from fear and anxiousness to real courage when life seems insurmountable? As we're going to see this morning... I'll say this at the front end, it does not come by following a good example. It does not come by a great locker room speech that will get you fired up and motivated so that you can go conquer the enemy. You know, often over the years, this passage has been interpreted by just go be like David. He's the great example of courage. Be like him and go conquer the giants in your life. That's not what this passage is about. And real courage doesn't come that way. It might last for two weeks. So real courage comes, we see from this passage, in three ways. When the true king is present, number one, if you're a note taker. Secondly, it comes when we have a God-centered perspective. And thirdly and finally, it comes when we rest in our true champion. That's the the outline, that's where we're headed uh, this morning. And so let's look at number one, the presence of the true king Look at verses 3 through 11, and let me try to summarize this again for us. So you've got these two hills, and on the one side, you've got the Philistines, and on the other side, you've got the Israelites, and this is a war yet again, the Israelites, God's people, against their mortal enemies, against their nemesis. And then there's this Philistine who walks out, named Goliath, into the valley, Every day, did you notice that? Morning and night, he's relentless. And he walks out, stomps out into the valley, and he starts trash-talking the Israelites. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible here. It's one of our favorite stories in our household. But Sally Lloyd-Jones says he walks out into the valley and he bellows this. Chickens! Your God can't save you. I will rip your heads off and have them on toast. That's what's happening. And the author of this, if you look, Goliath makes quite an impression, doesn't he? Notice the detail. Line by line, the writer is describing, he's wanting us to be in awe of Goliath. He describes in great detail his size and armor, 
armor and weapons. He's this enormous figure. Think Shaquille O'Neal and think two feet taller. It says that he's over nine feet tall. And his coat alone that he's wearing is 125 pounds. The tip of his spear weighs, just the tip, weighs 15 pounds. There's no wonder (laughs) that the Israelites are running and scared for their life. Look at the terms of the battle. The terms of the battle, and this is important. It was not, this type of warfare was not army versus army. It was a one-on-one cage match of sorts. Goliath, the champion of the Philistines and the champion of Israel would fight one-on-one. And here's what's interesting. The word champion, you know what it actually means? Man in the middle. So each side would put a man in the middle and they would fight. And whoever would win the battle would win the battle on behalf of their army. Think about that. Let me stop here. Can you relate to this at all? Can you relate to a relentless foe that is tormenting you day and night and never seems to go away? To sin that is crouching at your door and pressing in on you. Can you relate to things that terrify you and make you want to run and hide? Look at verse 11. Exactly the way the Philistines or the way the Israelites did because it was so insurmountable. Let's move on. Look at verses 17 through 23. And so Saul and the Israelites, they're trying to get the courage to fight uh, this Philistine, and they're on the front lines. And uh, David's dad, as we learned last week, is Jesse. And so David's dad wants to know how his boys are that are in battle. He wants to check on them. And so you know what he does? He gets a little Davy. Remember little Davy from last week? (laughs) He gets him from the fields. He's keeping the sheep. And he says, little Davy, would you take this food to your brothers and check on them and see how they're doing and then come back and give me a report. So do you see it? Little Davy is not only the runt of the entire family, but little Davy has become the delivery boy. He's become the Jimmy John's delivery boy. And that's what he does. He's holding his bag of food and he marches to the front lines. Look at verses 24 and 25. We see it again. He overhears Goliath shouting, chickens, your God can't save you. I will rip your heads off and have you on toast. He hears that. Goliath bellowing those things. And then look at verses 24 and 25 again. What happens to the men of Israel? Notice the theme. They're running scared. They're running for their lives. And look at how they're trying to muster and to motivate and to bring about courage. Through an inspirational locker room speech. King Saul, if you kill Goliath, he will make you rich, he will give you his daughter, and you don't have to pay taxes for your household. Did it work? No. Friends, we can't miss this. This is really important. The Israelites are afraid. They're running for their lives. They're anxious and fearful. And look at the passage again and notice who is absent from the narrative up to this point. 
Who's missing? The true king. David is missing the anointed one. Oh, yes, they have a king. And his name is Saul, but he's an imposter. He's a fake king. He's a false king because he's a coward. He's running scared. You see, who should have been the man in the middle? Saul. Remember, he was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a man of great stature, but he's running away, and he's trying to rally his troops with a pretty girl and with money and with fame. And it doesn't work. That's why if you look at verse 12, you see an emphasis by the author. Notice the emphasis. Now David. Now David. It's as if the author is saying, at last, the true king has arrived. And I love verse 32. Look at, skip down to verse 32. In the ancient Near East, when someone would meet a king, the king was always the first person to talk. And you did not talk unless the king told you that you can talk. David approaches Saul and they're in conversation. And who is the first one to speak? David. The true king. And I love what he says. He says, don't lose heart. I will fight for you. I will go and fight this Philistine for you. And you see that David shows up as the Jimmy John's delivery boy. And did you pick up on the fact that no one notices? No one even recognizes that he's the true king. His older brother says, run along, little one. You, You don't need to be here. What are you doing here? And Saul looks at him and says, you're way too young, you runt. And Goliath just laughs at him and mocks him. You see, the point is this. Friends, your only hope for courage in the face of insurmountable battles is the presence of the true king. The whole narrative changes when the true true king arrives. And who's the true king? We know because we live this side of the cross that David points to the true king, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's who we need. And we will not have courage unless he is at the very center of our lives. Listen carefully. Please listen carefully to this. It's tempting to think when we come to a passage like this that we're David in the story. That we're David and we're fighting the battles against the giants in our lives. And with all due respect, you are not David and I am not David. Because we're not the king. You know who we are in the story? We're the army. We're the cowards on the hillside. Hiding in our tents. With the zipper down. Looking through at this insurmountable battle. That we have to face against Goliath. And we are frozen in fear. And the reason why we're frozen in fear is because that's why they were frozen in fear. Is because when life pressed in on them from the world, they were under a false king. And they were afraid and scared and frozen in fear. If you live your life under a false king and not under the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king, you will always be running scared. Because it's the presence of the true king that turns cowards into people who are courageous. In the face of a roaring opposition. 
And if you look at the passage, when you fail to recognize the true king and the power of the true king, look at Eliab and his response to the true king. You're a pain. You shouldn't even be here, he tells David. I don't need you. Get out of here. And listen, we might not ever say that in our hearts, or not not ever say that out loud, but in our hearts. How many times have we said that to the true king, the great shepherd of the sheep? Go away. I don't need you. I've got this. Friends, we are not David. We are the people that are looking for a man in the middle. And we need courage. And courage comes when the true king is present in our lives. Secondly, we need a God-centered perspective. Look at verse 26. The true king, okay, here it is. True king arrives onto the scene and you get the first theological perspective in the entire narrative. And you notice... It's the very first time that David has spoken in the entire Bible. And the very first words out of his mouth and the first thing he says brings an entirely new perspective and view on the world. If you noticed in this narrative, up until this point, it has been godless. God has not been mentioned at all by the people of God. Because, you see, false kings are only looking out for themselves. True king, David, is looking out for the glory and the honor of God. And so David comes onto the scene, and you know what he says in summary? Guys, you're asking the wrong question. All you're thinking about is, what's the treasure that I get for conquering this foe named Goliath? Wrong question. The real question is who's going to stand and fight for the glory of God and for the honor of God? That's the question. David is shocked that God is not making more of a difference in the life of his people. See, David has a different starting point, doesn't he? And that means his perspective is totally different. David's first thought If God is with me, and if God is for me, then I have nothing to fear. I love Eugene Peterson. Listen to what he says. David has a God-dominated imagination, not a Goliath-dominated imagination. His perspective on the world is dominated by a view of God that is bigger than Then Goliath, and then he goes on and continues and says this, God was the reality in which David had to deal with the giants, and they didn't figure largely into David's understanding of the real world. That's amazing. See what he's saying, don't you? The reason why you and I are afraid, the reason why we often lack courage is because our giants are more real To us than God is. Our giants are bigger to us than God is. And oftentimes we see our giants and that's all we see because we've got a really small God and he is nowhere to be found in the picture. Think about how true that is. We huddle up in our neighborhoods and talking with our neighbors and We huddle up around the lunch table at our schools. 
We huddle up in the break room. We huddle up in the upper gathering hall, don't we? Remember, the Israelites believed in God. They were God's people. And when we huddle up, we talk about the economy and we talk about the state of the country and our finances and our health and our struggles and our plans and our future. And God is never mentioned. We sound just like the Israelites. We're honest. We sound like practical atheists. And you're saying, whoa, that's a strong statement, but think about it. The Israelites believed in God. But he just didn't matter to them. He just didn't factor in to their worldview and the way they thought about their lives. Their giants were more real than God was to them. God was not their starting point. God, just like us, is often in the background instead of the foreground of our lives. Do you remember the magic eye, those pictures? This is way back, probably 20 years ago. They were really, really popular. And you would look at this crazy picture, and it would be some wild design, and you were supposed to look at this thing, and after a few minutes of looking at it, you were supposed to see the hidden picture or the beautiful picture that was there. And it was interesting. The first Magic Eye created, it came out, and it was called Magic Eye, A New Way of Looking at the World. I hated those things. <laughs> All of my friends could see it. It seemed like everyone could see what you're supposed to see but me. I never could see it correctly because I always focused on the wrong things. And you can't see the picture clearly if you're focused on the wrong things. It's only when you focus on the right thing that the picture becomes clear and moves from the background to the foreground and you see it crystal clear and all the crazy designs move to the background. You see, when God is our starting point, when God is the focus, He moves to the foreground and we can see more clearly and put things in their proper perspective and everything else around us fades to the background. And so the question before us this morning is not, do you believe in God? The Israelites believed in God. The question before us this morning is, what is in your foreground? Is it the stock market? The economy? The fact that you hadn't had a date and you don't know how long? You're single and want to be married or your health? or children, or infertility, or kids. It's what's in your foreground. I just want to be popular at all costs. What's in your foreground? All those things are appropriate. But none of those things are supposed to be in the foreground. They're supposed to be in the background. And listen, I'll say this as plainly as I can. David was not an idiot. David was not naive. He knew how big Goliath was. He knew what was in front of him. He just saw him differently. Because he started with God. And God defined his circumstances, not the other way around. Thirdly and finally, rest in your champion. Look at verses 31 through 51. Try to summarize this again, lots of details here. But David is basically says, Saul, I'll do it. And he goes and David says, no, you can't. And 
David come, that Saul goes, no, you can't. And David comes back and says, wait a minute, I've got some experience. I've fought bears and lions, and God's been faithful to me then, and he'll be faithful to me now when I take out this giant. And so Saul says, okay, go for it. But let me give you my armor. And here's the picture. It's when a young kid, one of your children, puts on the, your da- the dad's suit or shoes. And it looks so awkward and so absurd. That's what it looked like when David put on Saul's armor. And so David says, I can't do this. I'm going with my shepherd's staff. And I'm going with my pouch and a sling and a few stones. I want you to think about that image. The shepherd, the great shepherd, stepping forward to battle on behalf of his people. It's a great image. And that's what David, he goes and he is looking at Goliath eye to eye, but probably not eye to eye, more like knee to eye, because <laughs> Goliath is so big. And they have this altercation and these words that I read to you, which are really amazing. And then David steps up and he takes out a stone. And what I learned in my study is these stones could be up to two inches in diameter and they could sling these things 150 miles an hour. And so that's exactly what David does. And it hits Goliath right in the forehead and sinks into his forehead. You see, David was less impressed with this giant and more impressed with his God. And what was interest, what's interesting is if you look at that narrative, after, out of 58 verses, there's only one verse devoted to the altercation and to the fight. It's like you paying big money to watch a pay-per-view fight, and it doesn't go a half a round. <laughs> it didn't last long. And then to top it off, this gets really graphic, but he runs over and takes Goliath's sword and chops off his head. And if you keep reading the narrative, the picture is that David pretty much carries this head around for a while. <laughs> as he takes it back to the people. And so here's the million-dollar question. What does God give, the God of the Bible, what does he give frightened, anxious people like us? What does he give frightened, anxious people like us? Well, he doesn't give us an example to follow. He gives us a Savior. The message of the Bible is not, go save the world. The message of the Bible is that we have a Savior. The message of 1 Samuel chapter 17 is not, go be like David. The the message of 1 Samuel 17 is that you have a David. You have a greater David named Jesus. And how does this Jesus save his people? By being their representative. You remember the terms of the battle? One-on-one match. And you are fighting on behalf of your entire army. When David walks out, he was representing the entire, entire army of Israel when he stepped forward. And when he killed Goliath, Israel won the battle even though they did not lift a finger. Think about it this way. College football was on yesterday. And your team, if they won, more than likely you came into church this morning and have already said this. Man, wasn't that a great game? It was close, but I am so glad we won. Think about that. So glad who won? 
You said, we won. You didn't do anything. (laughs) You were on the couch. You didn't lift a finger. You didn't play in the game. You didn't run the plays. You were not on the field. But what happened? Your team won. And your team is representing you. They win, so you win. See, David was Israel's representative. And David was fighting. He wasn't just fighting for Israel. He was fighting as Israel. It wasn't just his courage. It was their courage too. What happened to him happened to them. And that's exactly how God saves you too. Because you see, centuries later, God would send another little shepherd boy from Bethlehem named Jesus to come into the world and to do what you could never do for yourselves. To fight a battle that you could never fight yourselves. And in the same way, we in a sense are on the hillside and we're looking down into a valley and it's not the the valley of Elah. We're looking at our champion, and it is way bigger than the valley of Elah. It is a valley that exists between God and man. And our champion, Jesus, enters into that battle with something way more absurd than rocks and a sling. He enters into that battle with a beam of wood strapped to his shoulders. He's hanging there on a cross, and he is looking straight in the eye, a foe, way uglier and way more powerful than Goliath. He's looking on, dead on, into sin and death and evil, and it looks like he's going to be defeated, but three days later, what happens? Victory. Because he conquers sin and death and evil, and he's raised from the tomb, and he defeats our enemy forever and ever. And the Bible says if you believe in Jesus, he is your representative and he lives the life that you could not live and dies the death that you deserve, and you contribute nothing. Nothing. He has done everything. I'll close with this story. You've heard me talk about Ricky Jones. He's a campus minister, or was a campus minister at Mississippi State. He's now a church planner in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he, he he's, tells some great stories. And he tells about a time that he was really, really discouraged in ministry. And he was really down, and he kind of describes it like this. He said, it was like I was coming off of the football field, and I would lost the game. And I walked over to the sidelines, and Jesus is the coach, and I threw myself just sobbing on his shoulder saying, Jesus, I am so sorry. I've tried so hard, but I failed. I didn't do enough. I'm really, really sorry. And he says that it's as if Jesus looked at him and says, Ricky, what are you talking about? You're in the band. You did nothing. You want to score the touchdowns and you want to be great and make a name for yourself, but I won the game. It's over. And your job is to get into the pep band and to sing the fight song. And tell everybody you know that I have won. That it is finished. The game is over. I love that story. You know why I love that story? Because it hits really close to home. 
Because you see, if I'm honest, I so want to have it together. I so want to be like David. I so want to be courageous. I want to be great. I want to be strong. I want to score the touchdowns and win the game. But the reality is I'm in the band. I'm in the army. And I'm on the sidelines. And I am watching Jesus who has already won the game. Friends, that's Christianity. Christianity is not about being great and being like David. It's about remembering that you're in the band, that you're standing on the hillside as part of the army, and you are resting in David, the greater David, and his work on your behalf and what he's accomplished for you. That's it. So the question before you this morning is, will you come to the greater David? Will you come to Jesus and rest in him? He has done it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the greater David to accomplish for us uh, what we could never do for ourselves. Forgive us for serving false kings, for pushing you out of our lives. Would you help us now to recognize your presence? Help us to rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.